Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. It's Thanksgiving week, and we have a special episode for you that will change the way you see this holiday. My guest today is Denise Kiernan. Denise is an author, journalist, and producer. Her books, The Last Castle and The Girls of Atomic City, were national bestsellers. She joins us to discuss her new book, We Gather Together, A Nation Divided, A President in Turmoil, and A Historic Campaign to Embrace Gratitude and Grace. Before we attack the turkey, I want to say a few words not only to you, but to many other people in every part of the country. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. Who do we have to thank for this national holiday? The Pilgrims? Nah. Sarah Joseph Hale. Like so many of you, we'll spend the day with friends and family, turkey, and touchdowns. We'll give thanks for each other and for all that God has given us. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. My name is Denise Kiernan, and I am passionate about getting Americans to rethink Thanksgiving. Sorry. Not sorry. So, Denise, I want to start by asking you to cover the early history of Thanksgiving. We're all taught from a very early age that the pilgrims landed in Plymouth and shared a feast with the Native Americans living in the area. How close is that to accurate? What's so interesting about Thanksgiving as we celebrate it versus Thanksgiving as It has been on this planet for much longer. I'm always fascinated about how traditions and practices evolve. The concept of gratitude and giving thanks has been around basically as long as humans have walked the earth. The word Thanksgiving and even the practice of Thanksgiving has been around for centuries before even the conception of the United States of America. Yes, the pilgrims did land at Plymouth. Yes, the pilgrims did have a meal with the Wampanoag Indians. Was that proclaimed a Thanksgiving? No. When Thanksgiving became a federal holiday in the United States of America, was that event singled out as the reason for establishing that holiday? No. I want to be clear, I am not putting anything out there that other people haven't said for a while. And what's really interesting, I think, is that Every year you'll see these, hey, here's the real, this part of Thanksgiving. And I think part of the reason is we tell these stories, we tell this essentially a myth to kids in school. And then later on, when they get into high school or college or whatever, we don't necessarily recontextualize Mm. that for them and give them the full story. So every year, it's almost necessary that we keep trotting these things out. And contextualization of history is so important to really kind of look at everything that went into a particular event. And Thanksgiving, again, like I said, you know, I am not the first person to come out and say, yeah, that's not exactly how it happened. But what I'm interested in, 
And what was one of the linchpins of making me want to do the book we gathered together was the ageless, timeless concept of gratitude. I'm Earl Stevens. I'm an author here in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm thankful for the men and women of the working press who keep an eye on the enemies of the people so that you don't have to. Have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. There is an alternate, true, factual story about Thanksgiving and gratitude and harvest festivals and all of those things and how the actual holiday came to be in America and evolve Mm. in America. So I thought, let's have an alternate and true story. And wouldn't that be fun? And I'm interested how Thanksgiving celebrations changed in the 17th and 18th century. So a lot of what Thanksgiving is grew out of things like harvest festivals, which again, go way, way, way back. Thanksgivings were often religious practices in various parts of the world. You would set aside a day, sometimes for fasting and humiliation, as they would say, to give thanks for, it could be a particular event. When I was working on We Gathered Together, I came across some really interesting articles, including some archives from the Adams family, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Abigail Adams. And John Adams writes in his diary, Thanksgiving for the repeal of the Stamp Act. So like that was something you would have a Thanksgiving for, declare a Thanksgiving for. Thanksgivings for various wins in battle or days of general Thanksgiving, or like I said, fasting and humiliation. So Those sorts of events existed outside of North America, what we now consider the continental United States. They existed in Europe, and those traditions were obviously brought over when people came over. But the concept of having days set aside for saying thank you is something that goes back a very, very long time. Tell us about Sarah Josepha Hale. So Sarah Josepha Hale was so compelling to me because she was a young woman born in the early 19th century, actually very end of the 18th century. She had no formal schooling, but her parents instilled in her a deep, deep love of reading and learning. And she was obsessed with the written word. She married a man who shared her love of all these things. They used to have study hour together in the evenings. She lost him fairly early on in their marriage. And so she was a widowed mother of five children. And because of her desire to write, ended up becoming one of the most influential editors in the 19th century. She edited two popular women's magazines, the American Ladies Magazine and then Godey's Ladies Magazine, which was one of the most popular magazines in the 19th century. And just to be able to do that to me was Amazing. amazing. But what really moved me about her was that she had all of these things that she needed, not wanted, but like needed to do for herself and her children. But she still found time to raise money for people who had less than she did and to bring people's attention to causes she thought were worthy. And her tenacity was just I mean, seriously, I was interviewing her thinking, good God, what have I been doing with my time? (laughs) You know, I feel like I'm talking to her. You know, when I say I'm interviewing her, I'm looking at what she wrote. I'm looking at what she was quoted as saying. I'm looking at the book she put out. I'm looking at the anthologies that she curated. And is it true that she wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb? Yes. 
it was so incredible. I know, it's crazy. You're looking at all of this other stuff and then you're like, oh, by the way. So it was originally called Mary's Lamb. She definitely did write it. The story behind the writing of that is that one of the early jobs she was able to get was as a school teacher in a rural area in New Hampshire. And kids would walk to school and apparently occasionally farm animals would follow kids to school. So she wrote this poem, Mary's Lamb, and that became, as we know it, Mary had a little lamb. But what's so funny is there were so many stanzas. It's a really long poem. It's a lot longer than you think it is. And when we were editing the book, I told my editor, I said, I feel like we kind of have to put the whole thing in there because I had no idea that it was long. But yeah, that's her too. My name is Bella and I'm six years old and I'm grateful for friends and family. So how did she go from writing one of the most famous children's poems to being the driving force behind a national Thanksgiving holiday? Right. So before her husband died, like I said, she was very into reading. She was very into books, the written word. She wrote a lot. She wrote poems. She wrote essays. She wrote stories. And her husband encouraged her to actually put those stories out in the world. After he died, the need to make money grew. When she first published Mary's Lamb, it was not as famous as it is today. It was in a book called Poems for Children. And so she was writing and editing for a variety of places, but she loved Thanksgiving. And in her first novel, and she literally wrote this as a widowed mother writing at night, because that was the only time she could get quiet in her house. And at the time, right after her husband's death, she was working in a millinery shop with her sister-in-law. And she wrote a novel. And in that novel, she had almost an entire chapter dedicated to a Thanksgiving meal. She loved everything having to do with Thanksgiving. And in New England, Thanksgiving among the Puritans was more important than Christmas. And a lot of that celebration she had grown up with. So the description in her novel, Northwood, is one of the most decadent descriptions of a Thanksgiving meal you'll ever read. And her father was a Revolutionary War veteran. He had been injured during the Revolutionary War. And she was one of those people who just thought that the United States should be together. They should be united. And she believed in the union. And she thought that having everyone celebrate Thanksgiving on the same day throughout the country would be moving and meaningful and significant. Hi, I'm Jenny Van Pelt from Indian Shores, Florida, and I'm most grateful that more than half of the people in our country voted to save our democracy and to end racism. When I think about it, we're only on the earth for a blink of an eye, and look at all that we have accomplished in this short period of time. Because, as I said, you know, Thanksgiving had existed in Europe and other places and traditions were brought over. I mean, usually what would happen is the governor of the state would say, "Okay, the general Thanksgiving this fall for harvest will be maybe it's in October in Massachusetts. Maybe it's in November in New York. They would just choose these different days. And she said it should be on the same day. Everybody should do it at the same time. We need another national holiday because at the time there was just Washington's birthday and Independence Day, 4th of July. She said, we need this. 
And wouldn't that be a really beautiful, powerful thing? And one of the first Thanksgivings she describes is in her 1827 novel. And she spent decades writing letters to presidents and campaigning to create this national holiday. I mean, what did people around her think of this? I know, right? This is when you really want to be able to just time travel and go back and be a fly on the wall because there were people who really enjoyed the idea of Thanksgiving days were not unfamiliar, but the idea of just having one and everybody in the country did at the same time was not normal. So she would write about it in her magazine as her role. She called herself an editress and she would write about it in her magazine, what you could cook, why it was important, why it could bring the union, the country together. She wrote governors, she wrote ambassadors in other parts of the world. She wrote the heads of territories that were not states yet. But she knew that if this was going to be something that really stuck and really lasted, she had to get presidents on board. And Lincoln was the one who finally agreed, but she had written Taylor Pierce, Fillmore and Buchanan before then. And so what's interesting to me is like every year... She'd write presidents and she wouldn't get what she wanted. But, you know, maybe a couple other states would get on board and maybe a couple of newspapers in Ohio or the Dakota Territory or whatever would say, yes, we should all do this on the last Thursday of November, as this woman says. I mean, she was such a visionary. And then you think about that this was a time when women were almost entirely excluded from political life. And it's just even more spectacular. Absolutely. She could not vote. She could not legally vote. So when you think about the inability to vote and yet the ability to have such an incredible impact, it often makes me think of when I see these kids in high school today who are just taking action to make changes in their communities, I think, yeah, maybe you can't vote, but you can affect change. If you're passionate about something and, and you take action and you're committed to something, you can see the ripples from that little stone you tried to throw in the water. She lived in an age where she didn't have a vote. She was a widow. She had no formal education. And she was just committed to a particular idea. And she was committed to bringing people together. And she didn't give up, which is what I find the most interesting. I mean, it would have been great if she had said, hey, I want this to be a national holiday. And the first president she wrote said, yeah, good idea. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go, you know. But instead, it took her a while. And she hung in there because it was something she believed in. It was something that meant something to her. To me, that idea of the effect and the change that she was enabled to engender despite not having the permission of others to have that voice. He was really, really interesting. Tell me how it came to be that Lincoln wrote his Thanksgiving proclamation and about Sarah Josepha Hale's role in that happening. She was writing governors. She was writing ambassadors. She was writing heads of territories. She knew she had to write presidents. She went through Taylor, Pierce, Fillmore, and then Lincoln. And she wrote, President Lincoln 
And she wrote William Henry Seward, who worked with Lincoln. And so she wrote the two of them in 1863. Now, what's interesting to me, and one of the things that actually sort of compelled me to work on this book was a lot of times when I write, I'm not so interested necessarily in a particular event or a particular person, but rather the juxtaposition of events and people and sort of their intersection. So to me, The fact that Seward basically goes to Lincoln and says, these Southern states are saying we're trying to take away their states' rights. These states, we're not giving them their states' rights. And he said, here's another right we can take away. And Lincoln said, oh, great. What do you want me to do now? This is from Seward's autobiography. And he said, the right to declare Thanksgiving, because governors had been doing this. And Lincoln thought, well, this wasn't a law on the book. So yeah, why not? But the fact that Seward thought it was a good idea. And Lincoln said, yes, in the middle of the Civil War. So to me, that was the idea of creating a holiday that brings people together in the middle of a moment when we were so incredibly divided. Through the fog of Civil War, President Lincoln saw what mattered most, the unalienable truths for which so many gave their lives and which made possible a new birth of freedom. And so precisely when the fate of the Union hung in the balance, he boldly proclaimed a day of thanksgiving, when the nation's gifts should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. That to me was just a really, really interesting intersection of events. And he gets this letter and the letter you can see that she wrote, and it's so lovely. I love when you can see people's handwriting. You can see her actual handwritten letter. It's been scanned by the National Archives. And he got back to her very, very quickly, like under like a couple weeks. And Seward had already started working on what he thought would be a good proclamation. And he and Lincoln worked together to finish it up. And then he issued it in early October. The date that he set was the one that she suggested, which was the last Thursday in November. When the week before then, he was going to be giving a speech at Gettysburg for just incredible loss and incredible heartache and incredible suffering. So again, that juxtaposition of events struck me. Well, and I can't help but seeing parallels today, right, where a nation is so incredibly divided and there's so much suffering and illness and death around us. How in that divided time did a leader find space for a national holiday of gratitude, right? And what lessons do you think we can take from that proclamation? Exactly. That's one of the things that struck me. First of all, that In the midst of everything that Lincoln was dealing with, he thought, this editress's letter is a good thing for me to pay attention to. I should really do this. And that he did. And it was, to me, such an important statement. And I don't know what Lincoln was thinking at the time. I wish I did. But I feel as though, you know, he wanted the union to stay together. She wanted the union to stay together. In many ways, they were kind of similar in that respect. And what are the reasons, and when you talk about what are the lessons we have today, what are the things that bring us together? We focus so much today on what we differ on. I'm this way, you're that way. I think this, you think that. What are the things that we hold in common? I care about my family. My family cares about me, care about my kids, care about my community. 
you know, important for me to be healthy, to have food on my table, to be able to get an education, to have a job, to feel safe, to feel secure, to occasionally laugh and have a good time and maybe enjoy a meal. I mean, to me, these are things that no, no party, no, no division. They were focusing on what was a universal uniting good. And if history can be a teacher, I think there is a lesson in that. Can we focus on what brings us together? Can we focus on those things that we have in common? Goodness knows right now there is a lot of focus on what we don't and what gets us angry at each other and what makes us want to yell and scream and tweet and do all those sorts of things. But these were people in an incredibly contentious time when people were at war firing weapons on neighbors, family members. And it's not to say that everybody heard Lincoln's proclamation and said, yay, Thanksgiving, everything's all better now. But at the same time, just that desire or that willingness to say, you know what, let's just set aside a day where we all just stop and say thank you. My name is Peter Morley. I'm from New York, New York. And I'm so grateful this year for all of the healthcare voices that have risen up over the last four years to speak out against this administration and this GOP Congress from repealing health care. You have saved it. I am so grateful and thankful as someone who suffers from chronic illness. Of Lincoln and Hale, you write, she was far from perfect, as was he, but they were somehow perfectly suited to this occasion seeking unity in different ways, ways neither had thought might align, not under these circumstances, not in these divisive times. Tell us about some of the imperfections of both Hale and Lincoln. One of the things I find interesting when I, and I write mostly about history, is that we have this real tendency to either beatify or vilify people. They're all good or they're all bad. And the fact of the matter is, we're all just really, really flawed. And someone like Hale, if you look at some 20th, 21st century examinations of who she was, she fought for women's education. She wanted nothing to do really with the suffrage movement. That was not a battle she fought. And she was the editor of a magazine, of a big, important, influential magazine. She could have fought that fight. But to her, it was like, I want young women to get an education. I think that is their best road forward. Some people view that as a failing of hers. I get that. But to me, it's always interesting to think, well, 150 years from now, how are people going to look back at us and judge what we did or didn't do? Very harshly. Very, (laughs) extremely, thank you, extremely harshly. Extremely harshly. So harshly. And it's like, well, this was a woman who was raising money for poor people and fighting for young women's education. And you're going to rake her over the coals because she wasn't a suffragette. Okay. We are going to be raked over the coals as a society for a lot of stuff years from now. So that's Hale. Lincoln, for many years, when I grew up, he was viewed as the great emancipator. And the Emancipation Proclamation, I mean, this is very important, incredible stuff. But, you know, Lincoln was no abolitionist. And 
when it came to enslaved people in the United States, he basically wanted the union to stay together, you know, whatever that meant. And he wasn't quite sure what to do about the enslaved population if and when they were actually free. And you can see his views evolve throughout time, but he did not put his life or his words or his choices on the line and say, we have to free enslaved people no matter what the cost. But this doesn't mean that what Hale or Lincoln did wasn't important or significant. And we have this tendency, like I said, to like, they're either all good or they're all bad. And basically, most of us are just trying to make our way and hopefully doing the right thing. I mean, people were losing their jobs for writing abolitionist texts. Now, that doesn't mean that Hale should or should not have been an abolitionist, but she may have looked around at people she knew who lost their jobs for being a little more vocal than they did and thought, yeah, I'm not going to do that because I have kids. Or maybe she wasn't thinking that. Again, those are those sorts of things like, again, I wish I could time travel and go back and ask. But I don't like heroic portraits of people in history because A, they are never accurate. They're never even close to accurate. And B, they're not relatable. I mean, who of us are perfect? I mean, we're all just trying, which is not to excuse or justify the choices people make, but to just look back at them a little more honestly and clearly and say, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that choice, but that's the choice that that person made. How did they make that choice? Why did they make that choice? And what can we take from that experience? I mean, how many of us today feel really strongly about structural racism, for example, which is undeniable. How many of us would risk losing our jobs and our livelihoods to stand up for someone to do that? I mean, these kinds of questions come up for me when I look at the past. And that's when I think history can be a really interesting teacher. Well, I want to get back to Thanksgiving and ask, how did it evolve after Lincoln and Hale? I mean, did other presidents continue to issue proclamations? How did it become a national holiday? So after Lincoln agreed in 1863, Hale wrote him again in 1864. He agreed. He issued another proclamation. There was another Thanksgiving. She wrote every president as long as she was alive. Rutherford B. Hayes was the last president. But even early on in the 1860s, she wrote in her magazine, she said, this is not going to be a holiday until it is law. We need an act of Congress to make this law. Otherwise, it will always be at the whim of the president. And then what usually happened is the president would say, "Okay, you know, the last Thursday of November is Thanksgiving. And governors, in turn, would say to their state, to their papers, yes, President Jackson, President Grant has said this day is going to be Thanksgiving. We agree. And this is what's going to happen in our state. Please, you know, close your offices, this, that and the other. She knew if it wasn't a congressional act, it was always going to be at the whim of someone. But people kept doing it and it became a tradition. The last Thursday of November, the last Thursday of November, the last Thursday of November. And it becomes bigger and bigger. I'm Kim Lewis from Rancho Palos Verdes, California. I'm grateful for the activists who have come together in my local area during the past four years. They have truly kept me afloat. Pre-COVID, we met for postcarding, rallies, and meetings. During COVID, we meet virtually, of course. You know who you all are, and I'm so very thankful for you. 
it starts to be associated with the Christmas shopping season, the holiday shopping season. In the early 1920s, there are parades. And then in 1939, President Roosevelt had been actually approached years earlier when Thanksgiving fell on the 30th, November 30th, by various merchants across the United States saying, this is really cutting the shopping season short. Could you please push it back a week so that we have a longer shopping season? And the first time he was petitioned for this, he said no. In 1939, they really came at him again. And they were debating all sorts of things. They were going to have Thanksgiving in the middle of the week, in the middle of November. And he actually does agree to have Thanksgiving. He proclaims Thanksgiving is going to be the fourth Thursday of November, not the last. And like half the country said, no, we're doing it when we usually do. Half the country goes along with him. People who had scheduled football games and holidays and all that were losing their minds. The people who printed calendars were just apoplectic because they had printed the calendars a year earlier and Thanksgiving (laughs) was on the last Thursday. All of this stuff went up in the air and it was because it had become such a fixed tradition, but it was not a congressionally fixed tradition. And some people, a couple states celebrated both weeks, the fourth Thursday and the last Thursday. It didn't go over well as an experiment. And then finally, it became an act of Congress right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And to me, again, that was such an interesting juxtaposition of events. So you have Hale and Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War, and then you have finally the act of Congress establishing the holiday on a federal level during World War II. And again, you have these moments of incredible suffering and strife and division and these reminders of a holiday to come together. So I thought that was so interesting. Hi, this is Ananda Moss Bias, and I'm from Irvine, California, by way of Austin, Texas. And I'm grateful today that the majority of our country thinks that my little queer interracial inter-religious, inter-ethnic family has the right to be married and exist and actually thrive. I want to talk a little bit about how some communities have been totally whitewashed or basically erased from our Thanksgiving stories. Will you tell us about the role of Native Americans in the observation of Thanksgiving? And then can you tell us a bit about Dennis Bushyhead and his Thanksgiving proclamation. So when you get into the later 19th century and early 20th century, there were a couple of articles in magazines actually that presented fictionalized ideas of what the pilgrims and the Native Americans or the Indians, as they called them, had celebrated early pre-colonial days. This kind of melded and dovetailed with a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment that was going on in the late 19th century. And you saw people really sort of becoming obsessed with the idea of what was the first Thanksgiving, which was not something that Hale ever mentioned in any of her proclamations, in any of her letters, not something that any presidents had mentioned in their proclamations until Roosevelt. Pilgrims and Indians were not a part of the national story, but they started to work their way into sort of the popular culture. But then Native Americans became sort of a part of someone else's pageant and an inaccurate part of someone else's pageant. Dennis Bushyhead was the head of the Cherokee Nation. And the Cherokee Nation in the late 1800s 
they issued their own Thanksgiving proclamations on the heels of the presidential proclamation to their nation. And what was interesting, not just about Bushyhead's proclamation, but also about the presidents, is they often used these proclamations as a moment to talk about what was important to them and what they feel like their administration had accomplished, Mm. like things to be thankful for might have been things they had actually put in place and done. And Bushy had used his to talk about lands and the protection of lands, because that was something that was from before even the United States existed, had been constantly taken away from indigenous peoples and the original occupants of this continent. So it was interesting to me that the Cherokee Nation had issued these Thanksgiving proclamations to say thank you because Native American cultures on this continent and elsewhere have long had, as many other cultures have, traditions of giving thanks. And it's not limited to one particular day. I mean, in many ways, the best lessons about giving thanks for the sun, the sky, the water, the earth, everything that feeds us and sustains us, those lessons are best learned from the original occupants of this land. So it was interesting to me that Bushy had put out this proclamation and he really did talk about in the proclamation, the idea of how lucky they, they, they had these lands and they had enough lands that they would be able to live and thrive on. And it just sort of sounds when you read it like a nudge, nudge to the United States government that these lands should be protected. But then as time goes on, the Thanksgiving myth grows and Native Americans and other indigenous peoples of this continent beyond American, United States of America borders, found themselves losing their lands, losing their lives, suffering from various diseases, and then were just kind of propped up as, hey, there was this great meal everybody had together and everyone's happy. And That's not the full story. And as you get into the 60s and the 70s, there was a lot of activism around that and a lot of attention. And there were some really wonderful moments. You know, in the early 70s, they flied the flag of the Wampanoag over the U.S. Capitol. And that flag was presented by a descendant of the pilgrims to the acting chief of the Wampanoag. And the descendant of the pilgrims said, if it weren't for these people, I wouldn't be here because the Native Americans and their knowledge and their willingness to share that knowledge with the new arrivals to this country that enabled them to survive. This is Mindy Schwartz from Carlsbad, California. Right now, I'm most grateful that my parents, who are in their late 80s, are healthy and live in the state of New Jersey, where they are being taken care of by the people at the place they live and by a governor who is putting the health and safety of his citizens first. It's going to be hard not to spend Thanksgiving with family, but it's the right thing to do. So there were some really, really lovely moments that happened in the 60s and 70s. But like you said, we're still kind of teaching kids the same old story. Well, I think it's interesting that in the 60s and 70s, when women's rights were such an important part of the civil rights movement, that we don't know about Sarah Josepha Hale's contribution to the holiday as part of the national story. So it seems also like women were erased from the story as well. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. And actually, when you look at the proclamations, like I said, most of the presidential proclamations of Thanksgiving were, we're thankful that we're not in this war anymore. We're thankful that the railroad was completed across the continent, or we're thankful for this, that, or the other. And again, like plugging their administration or, you know, other blessings, etc. It wasn't until Roosevelt in almost 1940, mentioned the Pilgrims. That was the first president who ever mentioned Pilgrims, but didn't mention Hale. Actually, the only president whose proclamation I could find who mentioned Hale was Reagan once. And there's so many people, a lot of them are women. People always ask me, they're like, you know, I wrote The Girls of Atomic City and The Last Castle, and both of them have a lot of female figures in them. And people say, oh, you, you know, you write women's history. And I always say, yeah, no, I don't. I just write history. There were a lot of women in it. Right. right. There were a lot of women in history. You know, I'm just writing history, really. They were always there. I'm not putting anybody in there who wasn't already there. So let me ask you this. What do you think that we should do differently to shape this holiday to be more inclusive and reflective of its true history? I think that there is such, especially if you just go back and you go outside of our borders, there is such a long tradition of just giving thanks as a community. Hey, this is Steve Hofsetter coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I am thankful for people who know that science is not out to get them. Science is here to help. Please wear your mask. Happy Thanksgiving. That's a very personal thing, something I think is the most amazing thing in the world. You might not. Something you're extremely grateful for, I might think, oh yeah, whatever. It's a personal thing, but at the same time, the idea of everybody just coming together at once And saying thank you to me is an extremely, extremely powerful thing. So in a way, and now, and I get into this at the end of the book, we have so much more solid scientific neurological research about the power and importance and the mental, physical, and emotional benefits of gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. And they can measure, and they do, of having a gratitude practice. So- When you combine that with just this ancient, timeless idea of taking time to give thanks, in a way, it's just sort of like, let's just get back to the basics. We have a day when we can all just come together and say, we are going to find something to say thank you for. And you know what? We are probably, no matter who we are or what we believe or where we're at, there are probably a lot of those things that we all value and have in common. It's a great way to just come together and find common ground. So I would just love for people to just get back to the essence of Thanksgiving, which is just literally giving thanks. The end. Hi, my name is Lori. I'm from Broward County and I am grateful for empathy. I think it's important that we understand the thoughts and feelings of others from a lens of empathy 
It allows us to fight back against racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, ageism, ableism, misogyny, anti-Semitism, and bigotry. How will you be celebrating Thanksgiving this year? Oh, you know, I love Thanksgiving. I will cook a lot. Usually, so Thursday is cooking. Well, actually, cooking starts earlier in the week. But Thursday is the meal. And Saturday, I usually have a very big drop-in leftover party. Mm. And I make I like white that. bean chili. Oh, yeah. I make white bean chili with the leftover turkey. I make little sliders because I do my stuffing as muffins in muffin tins. And then when they're left over, you can slice them in half and they make great little slider buns. And we decorate the tree on that Saturday. So friends would stop over whenever they felt like it and just eat and hang an ornament on the tree and say hello. That's not happening. No. This year. But it's something <laughs> to look forward to when it can happen yes. again. Yes, yes. I'm going to be having a lot of calls with folks. I'm going to be having a lot of Zooms with folks. I've actually up on my website put up Thanksgiving-inspired Zoom backgrounds for Zoom's Giving. People can go to my website and go to Zoom's Giving and get gratitude conversation starters. I have little downloadable cards because I want to encourage everyone to be very safe and do what they need to do. And it's a wonderful opportunity to, I will probably reach out and be in touch with people I haven't been in touch with because I won't be hosting 20 people at my house. So, I mean, I will probably have more time to make that extra call or have that extra FaceTime with somebody, I normally don't just because I won't be occupied there. But I will still, no matter what, I will be making my cranberries and fendel sauce and I will be having my Madeira gravy, my stuffing muffins and some pies. Love it. Santa doesn't come to Thanksgiving for you? No. No? He comes on Christmas. Oh, I'm so confused. I think he comes on Easter. No. No? Christmas. Who comes on Easter? The Easter Bunny. No, no, no. He comes on Thanksgiving. No, he doesn't. No, you're the chicken. Are, the chicken the, comes on Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> I thought the chicken came on the Fourth of July. What? <laughs> a turkey or a chicken comes on th- Thanksgiving. Yeah, they don't get away either. <laughs> so, if you could pick only one Thanksgiving food to eat, what would it be? Pie. Well, I close every show by asking each of our guests this question, and I will ask you as well. Denise, what gives you hope? That's such a great question. What gives me hope? Little moments of grace give me hope. For example, I went out to a local farm. I live in Asheville, North Carolina now, after many years in New York City, and we have a lot of local farmers and growers. And I went out to go get some chickens from a local chicken farmer. It was a pretty long drive. And they had a shed by the road and just a jar of money in there. And my chickens were in there. And they had a bunch of other vegetables and things for sale. And it was all on the honor system. And everybody follows it. And to me, I just thought, that's really lovely. And the day after I got a little thank you note from some young, like nine and 10 year old neighbors up the street, we'd given them some stuff for Thanksgiving and they did little handwritten notes and that meant a lot to me. And then I look at people like Jose Andres and people who were just feeding people who don't 
have time. Jose is amazing. Oh my God. I just, I love him. I saw him from a distance once. I was at his place in New York and I saw him. The urge to like run over and just give him a hug, right? And say, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. It was so overwhelming. He's doing God's work for sure. Yes, he is. But I controlled myself because I didn't want to scare him. But I give thanks for people like that or that man, and I'm blanking on his name, even though I wrote about him in my book, who did laps in his backyard in England with his walker to raise money for the health service. He raised, I think at the end, it was like $44 million or something for the National Health Service. And the queen knighted him. It was fantastic. And it's just people taking little actions that might seem insignificant, but they add up. And it gives me hope because there are lots of little things you can do every day to just make somebody feel a little better. Well, I am thankful for you, Denise, and for you being on the podcast. Thank you. In no other place. And at no other time. Has the experiment of government. Of the people. By the people. For the people. Been tried on so vast a scale as here in our own country. Failure would not only be a dreadful thing for us, but a dreadful thing for all mankind. Because it would mean loss of hope for all who believe in the power and the righteousness of liberty. Therefore, in thanking God for the mercies extended to us in the past, we beseech him that he may not withhold them in the future. And that our hearts may be roused to war steadfastly for good. And against all the forces of evil, public and private. We pray for strength and light. So that in the coming years, we may, with cleanliness, fearlessness, and wisdom, do our allotted work on the earth in such a manner as to show that we are not altogether unworthy of the blessings we have received. Finding gratitude in 2020 can be difficult. We are a nation more divided than at any point in most of our lifetimes. Millions of us have lost loved ones to a pandemic our government refuses to manage. Our economy is in shambles because of that same government. And an outgoing president has dramatically undermined the faith in our nation. And most of us will not be gathering around the Thanksgiving table with a large collection of the people we love because of COVID. The sins of our past are growing in our present, and the ills we as a nation have done to Native Americans and communities of color are magnified many times over as the pandemic disproportionately ravages their communities. But there is still so much for which we can be grateful. The turmoil we are living through provides us with so much opportunity to finally get things right that we have consistently gotten wrong. We are on the cusp of a new administration with a chance of renewed hope in America. And we are learning how to adapt to the dangerous world, finding ways to celebrate together in meaningful ways despite great distances. I am so thankful and so grateful that you chose to spend an hour a week with me listening to the stories of America and some of the people fighting to make her a better, more just, more equitable place. Thank you for being here with me, and I hope the blessings of your Thanksgiving this year grow beyond measure in years to come. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.